Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Jody, Jerry, Garrett, John, Ben, and Janet, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined, so check it out. Our guest today is Luke LaRochelle. Luke is an avid multi-species angler and a PhD student in the Fish Ecology and Conservation Physiology Lab at Carleton University, co-supervised by Dr. Stephen Cook and Dr. Andy Danilchuk. His research focuses on the science of catch-and-release angling and how this influences the post-release behavior of fish. Luke also completed his master's at Carleton University, where he monitored the fine-scale, short-term, post-release behavior of black bass following different angling scenarios in winter and summer. Prior to graduate school, Luke attended Laurentian University, where he completed his bachelor's with a specialization in ecology. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Starting off easy, I always like to ask this question to each of my guests. Have you always had an interest in fisheries, or how did you get your start in this field? Well, this goes back to when I was a little kid, and I used to go fishing with my dad maybe once a year. Yeah, my dad used to take me out fishing. I would go probably once a year with him, and then growing up, I got into sports. I was into sports a lot more than fishing. I never really touched the fishing rod too much. But fast forward a couple years to about grade nine, I got connected with my, one of my buddies that I played hockey with that was at school. And we started talking about fishing and how, and I told him I really wanted to go. And so one day we ended up going fishing. And from there on, it was game over and I just started fishing right away. Throughout the last few years of my high school, I got right into the fishing. Uh, every day that I could go fishing, I was going fishing. And then I applied to school, Lawrence University in Sudbury. I did the ecology program there. I started learning about a whole bunch of different things and I really found my passion in the aquatic world and I kind of was able to combine my passion with my education and put those both together and so yeah I ended up finishing my undergrad at Laurentian and got in contact with Dr. Stephen Cook. He took me on for my master's and I got to, to do some more stuff in the fisheries related industry and yeah that's where i truly combined my fishing with my education and yeah that's where it is that's where i'm at now i think that's a great segue into the world of fisheries you talk about how you went fishing when you were younger did you think that you were going to be incorporating fisheries into your life as an adult or was that something you found out once you started your undergrad degree when I first started fishing, you know, it was more of a hobby and a pastime and I could hang out with my friends. I mean, that's a big component of fishing is being able to hang out with friends and people that you really care for and enjoying the time in the outdoors with them. But anyhow, at that point in my life, I did not really think that fishing as something job related or something I could do as a, as a profession. That was definitely not something that crossed my mind. 
but you know my parents always told me to go find something that i really do enjoy in life and make that part of your work and you'd be happy so i mean i think i'm on track to do that now and that's that's how i feel well it certainly sounds as though you're on the right track you're happy and wise words from your parents for sure so we've already talked a little bit about your fisheries research we've alluded to it but let's dive right into that as you mentioned, you completed your undergrad degree in biology at Laurentian University, which is in Sudbury, Ontario. While at Laurentian University, you completed an honors thesis under the supervision of Dr. Tom Johnston. What was your undergraduate research project focused on? That project was focused on the maternal effects and the influence that those maternal effects have on the embryonic survival of lake whitefish. We used a Lake Huron stock from the northern channel of Lake Huron, and it was a commercial stock, super heavily fished for a commercial industry. We took the eggs and sperm, and we raised the eggs, and we used the maternal characteristics to predict the survival of those eggs. So walk us through a little bit of the field work. Did you actually get to go out and sample these fish, or it was a cold November night, and I remember driving in the snow in Sudbury. We were driving north up to Blind River, and we collected this, these fish from a commercial fisherman. We drove it back to the, the lab on campus, the Living with Lake Center at the, the, the Laurentian University, and yeah, we created life in there, and we watched them grow. It was great. So you mentioned that your project was focused on looking at maternal effects. What are some sort of characteristics that could be associated with embryonic survival? Or were there any specific characteristics that you were focusing on? Some of the more popular maternal characteristics that you could look at for something like this is your total length, your fork length of the fish. You have the age of the fish you could look at, the somatic index, the weight of the eggs. So what were some of the major findings of your research? We weren't fully able to complete this study uh, due to restrictions of getting my thesis project done and just the life history of the lake whitefish when they spawn and when their eggs hatch. But we were able to incubate the eggs at three different temperatures. We did six degrees Celsius, four degrees, and two degrees Celsius. And we found that the eggs that spent time in the cooler water temperatures had the greatest survival. So those are the main findings is colder water, better survival for the lake whitefish. You know, it has big implications right now with uh, the warming environment and the natural stocks could be it's some good findings for natural stocks and understanding natural stocks and the population survival. Of course. I also have a personal connection to Lake Whitefish. All of my master's research was focused on that species, so I find this particularly interesting. After graduating from Laurentian University, you moved on to graduate school. You completed your master's at Carleton University in the Fish Ecology and Conservation Physiology Lab, as I mentioned. I briefly mentioned your master's research project earlier, but tell us more about that. What was the major focus? The focus of my master's project was kind of split into two different sections. Start with the ice fishing component, and then we can move into the bass fishing for the tournament component after that. But the ice component is... Uh, there's a lot of science in the catch and release that looks at air exposure. And most of the air exposure experiments are done throughout the summer or during the warm months of the year. So, you know, anything from 15 degrees Celsius and warmer. 
but there's not much that's focused on the, the winter time and how air exposures during the winter influence fish. And so for that project, we captured largemouth bass from a small pond and we air expose them and we also ice expose them. And what I mean by that is we took them and we placed them on the ice. Each of those treatments varied in length. So we had some of them that were on the ice for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and 90 seconds. And then we also air expose them for the same amount of time, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and 90 seconds. And we took the wind shield temperatures, the wind speeds, and we also took skin temperature of the fish. And that's what that first one's about. And then the second part of my master's thesis was looking at how different bass tournaments, the weigh-in formats that they use influence the post-release behavior of the fish. So there's two different styles of tournaments that happen for bass fishing tournaments. Um, one of them is where you have a central weigh-in location and anglers will go out on the water for about eight hours and it attempts to catch their five biggest fish. Some places like the St. Lawrence River, now four fish. They bring them back to one area and put those fish on the scale to see how much those five fish weigh. And at that central weigh-in, some tournament series choose to do a dry weigh-in where there's no water involved at all. So the fish come from the live boat and they go onto the scale and they're dry the whole time. And there's also another way that they do it with water. And so those fish are not air exposed anymore and they're being weighed in the water. Each series does their own thing. And then you have another type of weigh-in where anglers will go out on the lake and the fish are captured and immediately weighed and release and it's a an addition of all the weights throughout the day and so that's a different format and so what we wanted to see with this project was how these different tournament formats influence the post-release behavior of black bass and we use smallmouth and largemouth bass for that so it's fair to say that the common theme of your research is post-release behavior in regards to the ice fishing component of your master's work, what were you assessing specifically? We assessed the post-release behavior of the fish. And so we use a Velcro strap that goes around the fish and attach that Velcro strap. This is for both of my master's chapters, not just the ice fishing one, it was for the bass fishing tournament study as well. We use a Velcro strap and on that Velcro strap, there's a biologger. And the biologger is recording the acceleration of the fish in three different axes at 25 hertz. So it's taken 25 data points a second. It's also taken the temperature and the depth of the fish. We looked at uh, what we call the overall dynamic body acceleration of the fish. It's just another way to say that we look at how much the fish is swimming when it's released. You can also see the depth and the temperature that it's selecting once it's released. And we, we monitored that for 10 minutes. Interesting. That sounds like a unique piece of technology. and very fancy. Was there a reason why you chose 10 minutes? It gives us a pretty good indication of what the fish is doing immediately once it's released. And there's been enough studies that have previously shown that the immediate either reflex impairment or the short-term behavior of fish is a good indication of the long-term fate of the fish. So if the fish is acting weird, its orientation is off. So in other words, it's floating at the surface there's a pretty good connection to the long-term fate of that fish that it's not going to do too well and vice versa. Like if a fish is swimming good and it's looking good and recovering, then you can tell from that 10 minutes that that fish is going to survive that angling interaction. 
because both components of your masters were focused on bass, what would be the typical behavior that you'd want to see with a bass? So what's the typical depth that you would want to see them at that could be indicative of them doing well following release? It's kind of a contact specific thing when you're considering the, the post-release behavior of these fish, mostly because they're, they're captured from different lakes, different types of structures. So in the wintertime, these fish are schooled up deep. And when I say deep, it was deep for that lake. It was 20 feet deep. And there's all the largemouth in the lake were potted up in one spot. Whereas in the summer, you're catching these fish. The largemouth are anywhere from six inches to water of water to about 15 feet. And then smallmouth, I mean, you're catching those anywhere from a foot of water to 40 feet in the lake that we were fishing. To answer that question for what's a typical depth that you, you would find them at once released, it depends on the structure, where they're released, the species. It also depends on what they're doing at that time of the year. Where did all of your research take place? All the research took place eastern Ontario. Uh, one of them was a, a private lake owned by the Queen's University Biology Station or Queen's University. And the other one was on Big Rito Lake. What were the main findings of your ice fishing project? The main findings for the ice fishing project were, you know, maybe pretty obvious, but never studied before was that Colder temperatures lead to colder fish, so don't air expose them for a long time in the cold, especially when it's windy. They lose their body heat a lot quicker when it's cold and the wind is blowing across their body. And we also found that those fish also tended to stay shallower in the water column, so in colder water than the fish that were air exposed for a less period of time and had warmer skin temperatures, they, they tended to seek deeper water, so closer to the bottom. And the fish that were colder and stayed air exposed for longer or ice exposed for longer tended to have more swimming activity once they were released. Turning then to focus on the results of your bass tournament study, what were some of your major findings there? The major findings for that one were pretty straightforward. Fish that were held in the live well, regardless if they were weighed in a dry weigh-in or a wet weigh-in format, they tended to swim more once they were released. And they also stay in shallower water versus the control fish that were caught immediately and versus the other way in where you catch a fish, you wait and immediately release it. And so those fish that you caught immediately, even if you weighed them or didn't weigh them, they would just go straight to the bottom and sit and not move. And they would tend to, the, to seek the cooler, deeper water, likely because there's more oxygen there. And they would just sit there on the bottom and not move. The fish that were released from the live well, and we released them all in one specific area to best simulate a tournament. That structure had both shallow water, had vegetation for refuge, and it also had access to deep water. But all of those fish that were released after being placed in the live well and weigh-in was mimicked, they would all get released. They would stay up in the water column, so they would stay shallower, and they tended to swim more. And we believe that's more of a searching behavior because they've been running around in the live well all day in the boat and they're released into a new spot. So they're, they're likely just exploring the area. And there's also a potential that those fish recovered a little bit while they're in the live well from the angling experience. And those fish that were released immediately were recovering from the angling event. And so that's likely the difference that we see there. Well, that's interesting. So you continued on in the cook lab at Carleton and are currently a PhD student. Since you have the same 
theme between your master's and PhD work, what would be the biggest difference between your two degrees and research projects? Absolutely. For my master's, we did kind of a short-term post-release behavior using a Velcro strap. And those Velcro straps are kind of limited on uh, how long you could sit there and monitor the fish. And so after spending many hours on the lake, letting a fish swim on the end of a line, you start to develop new ways or thoughts on new ways that you can monitor fish. And so for my PhD work, we're using these pop-off tags that are developed using the same kind of technology that was on the Velcro strap. But this time it's in a little floating package that is temporarily affixed to the fish and records the same metrics that I recorded in my masters. So that's the swimming activity of the fish, the depth and the temperature use. And after a couple of days, it pops off the fish and floats to the top and we can go retrieve that package. But the main difference is collecting behavioral data for a longer time with my PhD chapters. Right. So you have several days as compared to 10 minutes, Correct. for example. Correct. Interesting. And with these pop-off tags, how do they know to release? Or is there some sort of mechanism? Okay, so the, the pop-off tag, we kind of experiment with different ways to get the tags to pop off the fish. The first way, well, let me first explain what's in the, the package first, is we have the biologger that records the, the swimming activity, the depth and temperature. We also have a radio transmitter. That radio transmitter when the, the float comes to the surface, we can use it to find the, the package once it's off the fish. That's how we're finding that package. The first method we used to get the tags to pop off the fish was a lifesaver candy that we plasti dipped. And so we we're able to secure that using zip ties to the fish. And once that candy ring, the lifesaver dissolved, the float would pop off the fish and float to the surface and you could go retrieve it. Now we got probably, you know, like data that lasted anywhere from that fish kicking it off immediately to up to an hour of data collected with that method, but it wasn't really consistent and reliable. And so we started thinking again and trying to figure out a different way to secure these packages to the fish. In fresh water, it's kind of hard to find materials that are going to corrode or dissolve compared to the salt water where there's a bunch of different methods that are used to, to pop tags off of fish. But in the freshwater, we're limited by the size of the fish and chemistry of the water. So we've come across this material called cat gut suture. It's uh, dried out intestines from mammals, likely sheep. And similar to the method with the Lifesaver, we use that as a dissolvable link. And we also, we went from a balsa wood to a, a hard foam for the float package. But that suture is the dissolvable link that we're using now, a plain cat gut suture. And that is lasting us a lot longer. Some of the larger fish were kicking it off right away when we were using a 5 aught suture size. We jumped up to a 4 aught suture size this past year, and some of these tags are staying on the fish for up to 15, 16, 17 days now. So we're getting some longer-term data out of these fish. How unique using dried-out animal intestines to secure your tags. I'm sure that doesn't happen a lot in grad studies and most people's field work. You mentioned that the first trial you did with these pop-off tags involved using Lifesaver candies. What did you do with that data? Yes, that was a super interesting project. We used the pop-off tags to understand how 
live well additives. So it's a product that you can purchase and put them in your put in your live well to help where what the manufacturers claim reduce stress and enhance recovery. We wanted to see if these live well additives actually enhance the recovery of fish and reduce the stress. And so that's what we use those pop-off tags for. The life-saver candy we used, or that method we used for that study. And when you mention live well additives, I've never heard of this before. What are the components of these additives that apparently make these fish recover faster and better? It was kind of really tricky to get information from the manufacturers on these. These products are heavy salt-based, lots of sodium, lots of chloride in them. There's also sodium bicarbonate. Some of these things are used a lot in the aquaculture and aquarium industry to help reduce the stress in fish. So these manufacturers make these products and promote it to anglers to put in their live well to help reduce the stress and the, the confinement stress and the angling stress while transporting these fish around. So what were some of the differences that you saw in post-release behavior where you had these live well additives compared to situations where you didn't? There was a little bit of hyperactivity in these, the fish that were in the live well with the additives, and it's likely due to a fleeing behavior. We also took blood physiology measurements. So we looked at glucose, lactate, chloride, and sodium levels of the fish after two hours of confinement. Yeah, we found that these fish are not recovering any faster than the, the fish that are in just fresh, well oxygen lake water. In fact, they probably taking a little bit longer to recover than the fish that were in just in the fresh lake water. And so probably, you know, anglers should probably not use these lava additives. I think just well oxygenated lake water is all you need to use for keeping your fish healthy in your live wells. That's good to know. What are some of the other research projects focused on? Uh, another one that we did was looking at how landing methods influence the post-release behavior of trophy northern pike so there's a, a lodge in northern ontario old post lodge they're la- located on lake st joseph they really wanted to know if they should be using a net to land their trophy fish uh, when we're talking trophy fish we're talking northern pike that are over 40 inches they were concerned that handling time increases a lot when you're using a net uh, and we did a full study up there and we looked at fight time, we looked at handling time, um, and we also looked at the post-release behavior of these fish after being landed by hand with a cradle or with a net. And we found that fish over 30 inches, that you should use a net, and fish under 30 inches, you should grab them by hand. And we found that there's a, kind of a trade-off between using a net to land the fish and using your hands. The net always reduces the fight time. But there's also an increase in handling time when using the net. And then when you're considering landing a fish by hand, there is an increase in fight time, but a decrease in handling time. When you consider fight time across size, larger fish, longer fish fight for longer. And so there's a trade-off when you're, you're targeting these larger fish that it's better to use a net and reduce the fight time and kind of increase the handling time for the success of that fish when it's released. That makes sense. By reducing bite time with larger individuals, but increasing handling time, they might be able to endure that handling more so compared to a smaller fish. Yeah, I think the biggest benefit to using the net there is 
you know, when you catch a big fish, especially in a place that people are guiding, I mean, it's a guided lodge. So most people out there are guided and you come across a fish of a lifetime. The benefit of having the the net is that you can unhook the fish and keep the fish in the basket in the net the entirety of the time in the water while you get ready to take your picture. Whereas if you're landing it by hand, that fish is likely going to be in the bottom of the boat for many, many seconds, if not a minute before you could even get ready to take the picture. So yeah, I mean, that's the biggest benefit is keeping that fish in the water the whole time. What were the methods that you used to assess post-release behavior in this situation? Yeah, again, we used the, the pop-off bio logging tags, but this time we moved on to this next prototype where we used a cat gut suture as the dissolvable link. And for this study, we got about 12 hours of successful tracking for each fish using a 5 watt suture. And so we, I mean, some of the fish lasted a lot longer, but we, on average, it was about 12 hours per fish that we were able to monitor. And yeah, we found that larger fish definitely swim more, but fish over 30 inches that were netted and released tended to have more swimming activity compared to fish that were larger and compared to fish that were 30 inches and greater and landed by hand. So fish that were landed with a net had more swimming abilities once they were released compared to fish that were landed by hand. And they, they didn't have as much swimming activity likely because they're recovering from the longer flight times. What are you going to be working on in the immediate future? The next step with these is to look at how long we actually need to, to monitor the post-release behavior of fish after different angling interactions to see when they recover. We aren't completely sure how long we need to keep these devices on fish. You know, we started with 10 minutes and we kind of moved it up to about 12 hours. And now we're going to see if it takes a couple of days for fish to recover from the different angling events. And that's really the, the goal of my future research here is to, to see how long we need to monitor fish for it once they're released. How long does it actually take a fish to recover from a typical angling event? I get asked the question all the time, how long does it take fish to recover? And honestly, we don't know yet. I mean, physiological recovery is a little bit different than the behavioral recovery. And they're pretty connected, but we still don't know how long that we should be keeping these devices on fish for. And when you talk about recovery times, you mentioned there's a difference between behavioral and physiological. I assume you're looking at behavioral? Correct. For the future stuff that I'm doing, I'm mostly focused on the, the pop-off tags and really putting a threshold on how long we need to monitor fish for. How are you going to be assessing recovery? Meaning, how will you know when a fish has fully recovered? Is there going to be some control group that you compare your data to how is that going to work yes yeah, so we have this uh small little pond that we have an acoustic telemetry array in and so what we did is we captured fish early in the year and we acoustically tagged them we did this with largemouth bass and northern pike and so we have about 40 fish swimming around this pond and we went to go capture them and if we would recapture one of these fish with the acoustic tags in it and so we would have pre-capture behavior with the acoustic data. And then we would capture that fish. So, you know, like one in every 25 fish that we caught had an acoustic tag in it. Caught lots of fish to get this done. Right. <laughs> we would put the pop-off tag on that fish and release that fish. And we would have a control treatment where that fish would experience little to no air exposure. So zero seconds. And then we would have another treatment, which is about 60 seconds of air exposure where the fish was just freely laying on the deck of the boat to kind of give it an extreme treatment on what you would typically or like sometimes see in a catch and release event 
And then, so we release those fish after they're tagged with the pop-up tag. Let that fish swim around with the pop-up tag for 10 days to 15 days. And then we would have, we could connect what we see before the tag was on the fish and what we see after the whole angling interaction. And we can bring it back and look at the data that's on the pop-up tag. So we have kind of two different technologies being used to, to answer that question. Interesting. And we haven't talked about acoustic tags before. So what is this technology for people that maybe are unfamiliar with it? Okay. Acoustic tags are tags that are generally internally implanted into fish. And in the environment, you have the receiver stations. And these receiver stations are listening for a tag that's swimming around in the water. And so the tag that's in the fish is transmitting a, a unique code. And the station will pick up that unique code and save that unique code and give it a timestamp. And so you have different stations or different receivers, I guess, throughout your whole system. And they each detect that fish at a time and date. And you can retrace or you can see the movement of the fish throughout that system. It's been great to hear all about your research, Luke. But something that we keep talking about is catch and release. And I think that you are an avid proponent of that. So a great question I have is, why is catch and release important? Absolutely. It's a super important conservation tool in heavily pressured fisheries. Catch and release only works if the people catching the fish are treating these fish properly and returning them to the water properly. By What I mean by properly is avoiding keeping them in the air and out of the water for a long period of time. Super quick, try to avoid taking that fish out of the water at all. It doesn't take a long time to get a, a good picture of a fish. If you're spending more than three seconds of that fish out of the water, you're doing something wrong. But even if you see a, a fish swimming away strongly, it doesn't always mean that fish is going to go back and conserve their population of fish. There's many other things that are influencing that fish once it's returned. You know, like uh, that interaction you gave it with catching it and putting it back, if it wasn't done properly, it could be detrimental to its long-term fitness. Uh, re its reproduction could be reduced. And, you know, that whole releasing the fish was not worth it because it's not, it's not returning to the population to help it out. So it's important to, to really take care of the fish you're catching. And this is mostly for the people that are catching fish and releasing them. And the, a lot of these people are what we consider professionals in this industry. They have TV shows. They're super present on social media. These are the people that really need to, to consider what they're showing their viewers and make it educational on why you need to, to conserve these fish. Like it's their livelihood, but they also fail to actually protect what is promoting their livelihood. You make a very valid point. And what sticks out in my mind is if you're holding it out of the water for more than three seconds, you're doing something wrong. Well, Luke, now that the tough part of the interview is over, we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that I ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? Uh, personally, my favorite fish, I mean, that's a tough one because I truly do like them all because at uh, every different point in the season, I can catch a different fish and it's, it's a lot of fun. But I would have to give it to the, the rainbow trout or the steelhead. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Likely defending my masters and in that same week winning the Muskie Brawl. What is your dream job or location? 
obviously retirement, but I think if I could continue research and researching fish uh, around the Great Lakes, uh, that would be my dream job. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you'd like to work on? Well, I could answer the question on what makes fish want to eat versus not want to eat and how I could catch all the fish that I see, how I could catch those ones. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Try not to always take hero shots and get that fish back in the water. Luke, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Yeah, my Instagram handle is at Luke LaRochelle. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, try not to always get the hero shot and get that fish back in the water.